Canucks Central Wednesday. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. We're here in the Kid Tech studio. Kid Tech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. This hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. It is a Wednesday, so uh, you know what that means. Overrated or underrated is to come in about an hour's time. And lots to get to in there. You can still get in a uh, comment, an idea for us to debate whether or not it is overrated or underrated. 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text line or at DanRicho underscore at Satyar Shaw on Twitter. We're going to get into the Stanley Cup playoffs a little bit here, Sat. And Kevin Woodley, who's been, uh, you know, he's our goalie guru and covering the Seattle Kraken Colorado Avalanche series. Uh, we'll, we'll get him in on the conversation after 1230. But a little bit of news today on Elias Pettersson. Yeah. Who is not going to the world championships. He had intended to play. It was believed he wanted to play. Mentioned that at the season end availability, but uh, is not going to play at the Worlds for Sweden because of an insurance issue uh, with, uh, well, I guess um, the lack of contract he has beyond this upcoming season. Yeah, and it's a, and one of the enlightening things over this process is learning a bit about what can be insured and what cannot be insured right? and how insurance works. And I am not going to pretend pretend to be an insurance expert by any means here uh, what i can gather about this nobody situation... likes insurance experts either and <laughs> well, we generally like you Seth. yeah well sometimes <laughs> uh I, i'd say this um so it is very difficult to insure a contract that does not exist and it's different but Pedersen has a contract in terms of future earnings. He has a contract for next season. Right. Now, what we do know, and we'll get to the greater point here, because I do think there are two interesting things about this which we should come away with, okay. and we'll get to that in a second. But I think there is a desire to ensure future earnings loss, potentially, if he has a devastating injury. Because right. he could be in line to sign a contract worth north of $80 million this offseason. And you cannot insure a contract that does not exist. Mm. Now, you could insure against potential future earnings lost. Now, that's also a different process in Europe than it is in North America, so it becomes far more convoluted. It was really not tenable, or it was not really not attainable, and if there was anything attainable, the cost would be so high, it's essentially prohibitive. Yeah. Uh, the speculation uh, has been that uh, it would cost 2 to $3 million. Even Swedish if, krona, I guess, and uh, that's even Sweden. if it was a, if even if it was possible to get it done, yes, you would have to create something for it or whatever. So, to your point about what it could cost, even it's a prohibitive situation. Now, what I think is interesting about this is Elias Pettersson is most likely in line to sign a very big contract this offseason, very big contract, and there's a desire to get that done, and there's a desire to not risk that unless you have all your boxes checked, right? So now, is the team happy he's not going? I can't speak for the team, but I do know that Rick Tockett has spoken about how it's probably beneficial for a lot of these guys to have an offseason and not yeah. play in this tournament. Now, he said it's different for every player, but I think organizationally, I don't think they're upset that Elias Patterson doesn't go to the tournament yep. and that he can spend another month getting ready for next season and be healthy potentially. So I don't think anybody's crying over this organizationally, but I think the big takeaway is... Yeah, Elias Pettersson's probably signing a big contract this offseason. It's um, it, when when Rick Tockett mentioned it, it's, well, you're waiting around for a few weeks after the season ends, then you go to the Worlds, so you spend a month there. Now two months of your offseason is essentially gone, and you could have been using all of that time or a lot of that time to be going out and getting ready for the next season. And what did Rick Tockett say over and over and over again towards the end of the year? He's got, this guy needs a big summer, and this guy needs a big summer. Now, that doesn't necessarily apply to Elias Pettersson, but we also heard a lot about Oliver ekman Larson and how his offseason was not great because of the injury he suffered at yes. the Worlds. And that's the worst-case scenario for any team, and the Canucks obviously need Elias Pettersson to be at peak performance for next season to start. It's 
the contract that's the real interesting thing. Yeah. Because is this a sign that Pedersen and his camp feel the contract is going to get signed this summer, so don't want to do anything to jeopardize that or, yeah. you know, not allow that to be at the forefront because this is the summer you lock into a lifetime's worth of, you know, generational yeah. type of wealth. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, even the insurance aspect, it's more, I mean, the team can't insure against Pedersen. Yeah. It's Pedersen insuring himself. Like, it's about him having the insurance, right? Because we see only- basketball players go through this all the time when it comes to playing for the national team. It's been, it's what's hindered Canadian basketball from having a full team at a lot of the major international events. Well, and you're right. And what oftentimes happens, you see this in the NBA, if a player is in line to sign a contract, yeah. he doesn't play. They never play. They don't play because you can't get insurance for that much future earnings lost potentially, especially when you're playing overseas tournaments, right? Yeah. So it's a pretty standard thing that happens. And teams are obviously, they don't want a guy to get hurt and go either, but the insurance aspect of it all comes down to the player protecting himself and being able to protect himself. So it, it tells you there's a clear inkling, there's a clear desire here to get this done. And like we've discussed quite a bit, the biggest hurdle I think they have to pass in getting a contract done with Pedersen is just the structure of the contract. Yeah. I think that the AAV and the total money is pretty standard. Like we're probably talking about, you know, a range of five or six million in terms of haggling. Mm-hmm. And the rest really comes down to how much bonus money is he going to get paid? And how is that all going to get, you know, put out? And how are the Canucks going to get that contract done? Generally, contracts, um, they're not that all that hard to figure out, you no. know. The 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 biggest thing um, in it's, terms of variance between these big money contracts is exactly what you just mentioned. It's how much signing bonus gets paid out. Now, um, Bo Horvat, as is in line with other New York Islander contracts, didn't get any signing bonuses in his new deal worth $68 million. But if you look at John Tavares, one of the big reasons he signed with the Maple Leafs is... A ton of his money is coming in signing bonuses. Generally, the super rich teams are, how should we put this, Uh, more accommodating when it comes to these sorts of requests. Yes. Because, you know, it's easier for them to just cut a check for 10 million bucks on July 1 than some other ownership groups. Whereas, you know, when you're just paying it out as salary, you know, it's part of your uh, regular, regularly scheduled expenses yes precisely right and you know if you look at the contract that Pasternak signed and Patterson is most likely coming in under Pasternak Mm -hmm. I'd say you know because of the track record he signed for 11.25 million per season 90 million in total money right so I think it comes under what what Pasternak got but he got 26 and a half million dollars in signing bonus money which is you know under a third of that contract yeah so with Boston, it wasn't too bad. Now, with JT Miller, the Canucks signed JT. He signed for $58 million in to- $56 million in total money, and $24 million of that was signing bonus. Mm-hmm. So the Canucks have shown a desire to give a lot of signing bonus money, or they've been able to. So I'd guess that Pedersen's probably asking from anywhere from 25 to $30 million of that in signing bonus, and yeah. that's what you're kind of haggling over here probably. One of the other things that's beneficial for players when it comes to uh, signing bonuses, to use... Tavares as the example because he was one of the more extreme signing bonus contracts. Yes. Like if you just look, even the last three years of his deal, he's getting paid $7 million in signing bonus uh, for all of these three years and his base salary is under a million bucks Yes, for each season. But if you're John Tavares, let's say your residence on July 1st is somewhere in Florida. Yes. And what does Florida have that a Canadian city would not have or a Canadian province would not have? No taxes. State income tax. Yeah. So if you're John Tavares, you get that $7 million check on July 1st and you have an address that's in Florida, you're not paying state income tax on that. Yeah. So it's a way to, and this is why, you know, not every tax conversation when we talk about athletes is equal because there are ways for them to work around it should they be clever enough to do so. Yeah, it's like in, you know, Washington, mm-hmm. uh, state doesn't have a state income yes. tax either. And then you often see people live out in Point Roberts. Yes. That kind of deal or just across the border and everything. Not so, just Don Tortorella and, and Mark Messier, yeah. hey? Hey, hey, no, exactly. <laughs> uh, and you, you know what? And, and that's why as much as, yes, it matters 
where you live and taxes play a part. That's why people say, if you have a good enough agent and a good enough accountant, you can figure this stuff out. There are ways around it to mitigate the type of loss you would have living in this type of market tax-wise, right? And to your point, sign a bonus payouts, help out of that because you can get those that money paid out in the off season when your place of residence is different from when it is during the season, right? So uh, those are just some little tidbits on that. But point is, overarching point here, Elias Patterson is probably signing a long-term deal with the Vancouver Canucks this summer. Yeah, and, you sh- and it shows you um, how big a deal this is. Then if he was an RFA next season, mm-hmm. then I'd be like, well, it's obvious. He's an RFA. He doesn't have a contract. But the fact that he has a one he has one year left on his contract yeah. and he's not going and is this concerned about insurance tells you there's a real immediacy here in terms of getting this contract done this offseason. We talked a lot this season about when they made the coaching change, You know, why make it now? And even towards the end of the year where the Canucks started to tank their chances of Connor Bedard a little bit with how well they played under Rick Tockett, 100-point pace after Rick Tockett came in. One of the biggest reasons we talked about when they first made the coaching change, you have to be able to sell something to these players. And they have to believe in the direction that you are taking them. And things were getting pretty bad. We talked about rock bottom in the Boudreaux era, and it felt like that's where this was all going. But I can't help but think of some of the comments from the leadership group, whether it was Quinn Hughes, JT Miller, Elias Pettersson at the end of season availabilities, and just how much they talked about believing in the coaching staff and believing in what they had been putting together through the back end of the season, they started to sell Elias Pettersson on the future when they brought in Mm -hmm. Rick Tockett. And if Pettersson signs a contract this summer, I think one of the reasons he feels confident in which way this team is going is because of the move that they made at the end of the year. I think that plays a part into it. And as much as the Bo Horvat thing was, you know, I'm not, you know, a lot of guys wanted him to still be on the team, obviously, yeah. and, and some guys understood. But it was a real moment of clarity and direction, at least. And then getting Philip Peronik, I think, was the other part of it as well. Yeah. I just think, you're right. I mean, I think the coaching aspect played, played a part into it. I, I was always cooler on the idea that Pedersen had one foot out the door. There was a big discussion point throughout the season and the years prior that, hey, maybe Pedersen doesn't want to be here long term. Well, there was the story of Michael Russo. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of hinting that it's not a guarantee Pedersen stays in Vancouver. Yeah, and... Or wants to stay in Vancouver. And not to say the reporting was wrong, because I think, that, I mean, for any of the star players, you have to show that you're competent. If you yeah. show incompetency, eventually guys like, I'm out. So I yeah. think there's a level of truth to it, obviously. But the level of having, you know, the, the, the perception, and I don't mean Russo, but others, that maybe he had one foot out the door, I thought was a little premature. But I do think the fact that they showed some competency down the stretch... Yeah plays a big part in not only how he feels, but some of the other players and how they feel about it. Like, I don't think it's lip service. Guys are talking about wanting to be back next year. Yeah. Remember, there was some talk about Demko, and perhaps at one point he, he may have been... I think mean, a lot of guys were frustrated. It, it's yeah. been pretty bad the past couple of years. Things haven't been good. The direction been has been wayward. And I just think by the end of the year, there's a real sense of at least togetherness for a lot of the core guys. Yeah. The question, like we've all been asking, is does that actually mean anything? Yeah. Does it carry over? Yeah. Uh, you know, we talked about this quite a bit with some of those players. Ethan Bear, uh, for as candid as he was, it, it even said, you know, we haven't really accomplished anything yet. So, you know, it feels like we're going in the right direction, but still a lot of work to go. But I do feel as though it's not too dissimilar from what it was last year under Boudreau, but some of the things they were saying were different in the sense of the way they spoke about the coaching staff, yeah. the habits they started to bring to the rink and different things like that. Whereas the good vibes that they had under Boudreaux seemed to be more results-based and the fact that they had just changed a lot of what was going on and they had started winning a bunch of hockey games. So we'll see, but it does feel like for me, that was one of the big reasons we're at this conversation point where 
you're probably locking in Pedersen to a big deal this summer. Yeah. And it's probably between 85 and 90 million bucks. At. And, and that's really what it comes down to. It's like how much the money is going to be. Right. And we're going to transition to a comparable here in a second. I wanted to get this text in. Uh, somebody says it's misleading to say they were on hundred point pace when, uh, when Taka took over, they played weaker teams and all that. I mean, all that stuff's true. Nobody's sitting here saying this is a good team. They figured things out. It's just a matter of, how they played and how the players feel about how the season ended. Yes. You know, nobody's overrating or overstating anything. It's just about how did the players feel about it? Because to a man in the off, once the season ended, they talked about how these things did matter and how they are now excited about next year and they feel like they have a chance next year. And I don't think it was lip service. Talking to some guys too, um, you know, over the past couple of weeks and, and getting the sense from some people I've spoken to, it wasn't just lip service. They weren't just saying things for the sake of saying things. A couple of years ago, there was a real sense after the season ended, there's some unhappy players here. Yeah. And what are you going to do about that? That's going to be very difficult. It wasn't the same sense this year. It uh, it felt different when you talk to guys, too. Um, there, there's that comment that stuck out from Quinn Hughes where he talked about how Adam Foote and Sergey Gonchar have taught him things that he'd never thought of before. There was a real connection with the coaching staff uh, towards the end of the season with a lot of these players. Uh, again, we'll see if it carries over. But also, to the texter's point, uh, it is a fact. They played at a hundred point pace with yeah. Rick Tockett. Yeah. Now, how much you want to take from that is is your own uh, choice. I mean, they played at a hundred and six point pace with Boudreaux. Yes, uh, I wasn't saying it to be like, oh, this is a guarantee yeah, that they're just, going to be. It's great just a fact of year. how they played and yes. how that all factored into things. But like, here's a question: the the other one, and I'll just pose it to you: How much more is Patterson getting than what Jack Eichel got? <laughs> Eichel signed an eight year contract worth eighty million. Now they're different times when they signed their contracts, obviously. Uh, Eichel didn't come off the same level of production Pedersen has come off, but up until Eichel that point... Eichel was the second contract, too. Second contract that he signed. It's a bit different, obviously. Bought out fewer unrestricted free agent years? Yes. He's buying more UFA years here with Pedersen. So the question isn't, is it more? It's how much more? Yeah. And Jack Eichel, for... Um, as good as we thought he was going to be, things have sort of changed for him given the injuries and where things went with Buffalo. Even this year, only finished slightly above point a game. I think he had 67 and 66. So not nearly the same point projection as Elias Pettersson. And I think that's on the low end of where Pettersson would end up. Like, I'd be shocked if Pettersson signed for 80 million bucks. Uh, when he gets his next contract with the Vancouver Canucks. So how how willing are they to give up signing bonus money? How much of it? Because Eichel got $15 million in signing bonus on the contract. Yeah. Not significant. And that's where I think this is, could be your key a little bit in terms of keeping the AAV down slightly. Can you get it to, like, can, can you get it? If you give at, more signing bonus money, you could potentially keep the AAV down. Yeah. Could it be at 10.5, for mm-hmm. instance, or 10.25 or something if you load up the signing bonus? I have a hard time believing Pedersen signs for less than $88 million. $11 million, essentially. Yeah. That seems to be the number, doesn't it? $11 million. That kind of looks like the number. The question I have is how much can you bring that down by the level you load up the signing bonus money? Yeah. And that's the interesting part. But I... So... Let's let's forget the Oilers in the conversation because they have Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. We know yeah. those are the two best centers in the division. A little bit different. Um, and great con- like Dreisaitl's contract is he like the like for a guy making eight and a half million? Could he still be the biggest bargain in the NHL? He might be. <laughs> <laughs> the way he's playing in these playoffs, like going into last night, he'd been on the ice for every single Oilers goal scored. Um, that changed last night, but uh, you know he still played a big factor in the Oilers' big win to put LA on the brink. Is it between, and I think it is between, Jack Eichel and Elias Pettersson as the next best center in the division? Mm-hmm. Are you taking Pettersson over Jack Eichel? I am, personally. Yeah. But um, Eichel's been fantastic. So Eichel, like the point production hasn't been there in the same way that you know Pettersson's has. Mm-hmm. Um, took him a while. Yes did have a pretty significant injury and a pretty significant surgery. Yes. So I will grant him some level of leeway there. But Eichel doesn't get enough credit for how hard of a player he is defensively. Mm-hmm. 
No, he's been very not only good defensively, but hard on pucks defensively. Yeah. He battles to be on the right side of the puck. He he comes away with pucks and battles. He's in the right spot. He gets in people's faces. Like he he's playing full on two way functional playoff hockey down the middle, and he's producing. It's hard to take Eichel over Pedersen at this point. Yeah. Eichel was a second overall pick, had looked to be trending towards that guy that's going to, you know, uh, it's going to be him and McDavid. They were one and two in their draft year and all these different types of storylines. We may end up seeing them in the second round of the playoffs here battling against each other, which could be a really nice storyline. Hopefully one day. Um, But it's hard to take him over Elias Pedersen right now. And I think that shows just where Elias Pettersson has gone. I mean, a couple of years ago, you would have never even thought that. When Pettersson was drafted, you're like, oh, he could be better than Jack Eichel. <laughs> Everybody would be like, okay, yeah. I'll sign up for that. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you know, and he was drafted a couple of years after McDavid, for sure. Uh, sorry, after Eichel. But you know, Eichel was trending towards being, you know, with a, with a bullet, a top five player in the league at that yeah. point. I mean, Pedersen at Pedersen at number five is a type of player you hope to get with the first overall pick. Yes, it really is. Now, now, sure, there is a McDavid, but McDavid's like literally once in a generation, mm-hmm. you know. But but to me, one of the reasons why you know in his rookie season, I was like, man, th- this guy has the potential to be a generational talent, is because you're talking about a guy who can be an ace as a two way guy, plus he can be a hundred point player. And if you if you're a hundred point player and you're one of the best defensive players in the league, how often do those, do those players come along? You're Pavel Datsuk. They, they come along like once in a generation. Well, Datsuk didn't even get to hundred points. No, it was Fedorov. Yeah, like there's a handful of guys in NHL history who've done that. You know, that's what we're talking about. And now Pedersen hasn't gotten there defensively yet. Like he has, a, like once he gets there though, like that's what we're talking about here. So Pedersen's the type of player you hope to get with the first overall pick, and that's what you have in your organization now. And this year was truly the year where it's like, okay, he is that. Yeah, we we were banking on potential. It was tantalizing, and he showed a lot his first two years and his bubble as well. And then the last two was a bit of a struggle. We know mm-hmm. the North Division year. We know last year how hard the first half of the season was. But this year was really like the okay, like you know, I'm him. <laughs> I am him. It's true, and I, like the the crazy part is there's still like areas for Pedersen to grow. Uh, he still wants to get harder on pucks. He still wants to increase his balance, get a little bit stronger so that he doesn't get knocked off the puck as easily. He has mentioned this himself as areas he feels he still needs to work on and can get better in. But if you can maintain this level of production and really start to take another step at both ends of the rink, be better in the, in the dot, mm-hmm. continue to be a good penalty killer, continue to be a guy who can match up against the other team's top center and win those matchups. Now you're sort of talking about a very small group of centermen in the league that can play at that level. And it's hard to imagine that Pedersen isn't there. Mm -hmm. And is it better than Jack Eichel? Is he better than Jack Eichel right now? Yes. But I do think Eichel is going to find another level of production too as he continues to uh, probably next year. Yeah. Finally, and, like really get an, another year out from his major surgery. And like we've discussed too, it's not just about pure point production. It can like, never be just about you know, pure point like, production. I can see Elias Pettersson being an even better player next season and have what, three or four fewer points? Mm-hmm. Or just be a 100 point guy or a 99 point guy or a 95 point guy? 100 points is just arbitrary. Yeah, but 95. Right? Like even if, like next season, Elias Pettersson could be a 95 point player. Yeah. But be worth like two extra million on what he's doing on ice. Yeah. Because if he if he adds that another level defensively, which he's very capable of doing, he adds that it's a different game, man. Mm-hmm. Like that's there won't be many flaws in his game, especially if he gets phys- he's stronger physically and wins some battles too. Like there aren't many flaws in his game, and it's it's very hard to find centermen that can score, be great defensively, and be essentially flawless. Um, does Pedersen's previous season come into the contract conversation? Of course, you take the totality of a player's resume into mm-hmm. a contract conversation but he's for over a point per game on his career now i would say i would say this if Pedersen had back-to-back 100 point seasons going into this negotiation you're probably looking at more of a 12 million dollar player yeah i mean yeah if he has like let's say he doesn't have the slump last year well yeah you're talking about 12 12 and a half yeah so that's where Pedersen's 
um, not so great previous season comes into the conversation because it's essentially limiting his ceiling on this current contract should they go into that negotiation now. Because if you have back-to-back 100-point seasons and then you're going into a contract conversation like that, I mean... Yeah, you're, you're Nathan McKinnon level almost. Well, it's kind of like Pasternak almost, right? But Pasternak didn't get 100 points previously. He had 77 last year, but he had a 95-point season previously. Yeah. Right? He has 617 points in 592 games, right? That puts him into the over $11 million category. Pedersen has 323 points in 325 games. He's essentially a point-per-game player. Yeah. And those guys get over $10 million. <laughs> At, at, at that stage, when they sign contracts, that's what they sign for, 10 to 12, 10 to 11. Uh, and Pedersen's going to get that this summer. Uh, all right. It's a good conversation. We'll keep your texts coming in. 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Kevin Woodley is going to join us. His take on the playoffs. And uh, I want to shout out this texter who texted in at 12.02 today. Like they were just waiting for the exact time that Canuck Central came on the air to say, Baker Mayfield is Dan's doppelganger. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> We've had this conversation before. Hopefully I, uh, anyways, hopefully I'm a little bit better than Baker Mayfield. Yes. <laughs> you are slightly. Okay. Significantly. <laughs> Sat's still a bitter Browns fan. It's uh Dan Richo, Sat T.R. Shaw. You're listening to Canuck Central. Big opinions and good bets. It's the People Show with Big Nazar. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Canuck Central in the Kintech studio, Dan Richo and Satyar Shaw. Tonight on Sportsnet 650, you will be uh, able to hear the Abbotsford Canucks in Game 1 against the Calgary Wranglers second-round series of the Calder Cup playoffs. It's a best-of-five. Calgary has um, first two games on home ice, and then uh, I believe the next three, should they all be needed, will be... uh, in Abbotsford. So uh, you got a little bit of time to get in on uh, those tickets as well. But uh, tonight, the Abbotsford Canucks try to continue their Calder Cup run, which has been a very positive thing for this organization. So. Yeah, one of the bigger positives for yep. the organization this season, overarchingly outside of you know individual players that we've discussed on the team, is probably the best story for the organization this year. And Nils Hoaglander has been, uh, I mean, I wasn't at the games to watch them, but anybody you talk to that has been watching, and you can also look at a stat sheet. Yes. Uh, Nils Hoaglander has been the best player on the ice. So big-time playoff performer, Nils Hoaglander. You love like you like to see it. You know, this was a player that's got a ton of potential and is uh, finding his game again. But it's, it's also one of those things, like at his age now, uh, 22, the amount of NHL experience he has – Shouldn't, shouldn't we sort of expect him to be like one of the best players on the ice every night in an AHL hockey game? He should be, but it's nice to see him do so. And more yeah. than anything, be trusted in, in a lot of different situations, which has been the big question about him. Uh, let's bring in our next guest. He is uh, our goalie guru and uh, covering the Seattle Kraken and Colorado Avalanche series for NHL.com right now. It is uh, Kevin Woodley. What's happening? How was Seattle? Uh, it was uh, it was excellent. Um, the energy, the vibe, the building, obviously brand new building. Um, the scoreboards, I know there's two of them and that throws everyone off, but I- I'm going to be honest with you here. I hadn't really thought much about you know, the condition of the scoreboard at Rogers Arena. Like it didn't bug me, <laughs> but when I'm writing, as soon as there's a replay I need to watch, I look to the TV instead of the scoreboard and down there, I look to the scoreboard instead of the TVs that they have at each seat. Um, it's like, it's so clear. So um, like, I don't travel like other writers do. So I don't notice that difference as much as it was, it was a little jarring, but oh man, the vibes in the city, um, the fans, the reaction to it all. Uh, there's a lot of excitement, a lot of energy. Uh, Seattle is, I mean, I guess it always has been at a minor league level and, and a WHL level, a hockey town to a certain degree, but I didn't, see it being this level at a major league level as fast as this and 
you know, popping in on some of the establishments afterwards and before games and seeing the energy and the amount of crack and merchandise and the watch parties mm-hmm. and things like that. It's And even, like, just how perfectly they booed Kale McCarr after they hit the other <laughs> yeah. night. Like, cheer to boo, cheer to boo. As soon as he touched the puck, and then as soon as, you know, like, it was – it was well done. They're uh, they're having a good time down there. Uh, I missed playoff hockey. That's not a dig at the local team that hasn't provided any for me for a while to cover. Yeah. Um, I just missed it, and it's nice to it's nice to be covering it again, and and nice to feel that energy in a building. And yeah, it was. It's uh, I'm looking forward to going back Friday for Game Six. No, it's, I mean it, it seems fantastic, and you know what it is. It's also I I, I think. Um, real justification for why the expansion draft process is the way it is. Now, obviously, they pay a lot of money, so they need a decent team with the amount of money they pay to bring a new team in. But you saw with Vegas, now they had immediate success. You're seeing with Seattle next season, you're having success in year two making the playoffs. It is so important to have that initial success and to have this kind of base to build on. And in a sport market like Seattle, I, I don't want to overstate things, but it seems like they've been a made team already just because they made the playoffs in their second year. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he's... Like I said, the, the difference here, Sat, would be I, I haven't been down there before, so I can't say how yeah. needed this was for them because, you know, clearly from a ticket sales standpoint and revenue and the amount of merch that you see out there, they were doing just fine without being in the playoffs, without the success, but it can't hurt, right? Like, obviously, and the energy, you know, it's like we talk about rivalries being built in playoffs. Like, um, you just capture the imagination of a lot more people. Um, you see in the stands, like, the amount of sort of Seattle celebrities that are down there, um, a lot of Seahawks players, uh, Seattle Storm, um, and yeah, it's just there's there's an energy there that is going to attract more people to the game beyond the hardcores that had already embraced it, beyond the people that had embraced it because of the novelty and the newness of it. Like you're just going to continue to expand and build that with success and with the atmosphere and energy that comes with the playoff run. Well, whether whether it's a run or just one series and. and you know, that's yet to be determined, but uh, let's just say I, I, I'm not betting against them the way I would have at this point, the way I would have maybe going into this series. So uh, what's what's the deal with the Seattle forecheck? It's been pretty impressive. Yeah, and, and, and here's the thing that is challenging about it is maintaining it. Um, and I think you saw that throughout the season too. I think there were times where, like, it's hard to play against. They come at you with a lot of speed and a lot of sort of aggression um, consistently, lines one through four, and uh, that's not easy to manage. And you've seen the turnovers from some pretty good puck-moving defensemen in this series, the mistakes that have led to chances that have led to goals. A team with as mobile a back end as there is in the NHL, you know, struggling to get out because of that relentless pressure. But just as it's hard to sort of navigate it and break out against it when it's on, it's also not easy to get it from four lines and to get it consistently for 60 minutes plus game in and game out. As much as, you know, Dave Haxtell has said, well, this, that's who we are. That's our identity. We just need to stick with it. They don't all the time. Um, and because of the high end talent on Colorado, uh, and that really is what's leading, like this is really a battle of depth versus, you know, a handful of guys and Seattle's handful of guys because of the ability of, of some of them, like, like McCarr and McKinnon and, uh, and Rantanen to go video game mode may be enough to get them out of this round ultimately. But I don't know that it's, you know, it certainly doesn't look like it's going to be enough for another Stanley cup run. They're just leaning too heavily on those guys. And for all the talk about the Eastern conference and, you know, the heavyweights going at it, and they're not going to have anything left for the cup final because it's Toronto, Tampa, and then they got to go through Boston after that. Like, Seattle may not be a physical team, but that forecheck and the pace of it over the course of a series, you're seeing it already start to take a toll, and it will take a toll even if the Avs are successful and move forward in this after this series. That's going to continue to take a toll just because – their top players are being subjected to it. I mean, Bednar was down to three lines and four D from the third period on uh, in game number four. And, and Seattle just keeps, well, I mean, they, they dropped one line for the most part, but like they're getting consistent pressure and, and maybe not bottom line offensive results, but results in terms of establishing that forecheck and wearing out the opponent on from lines one through four. And so, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens here with, without Makar. 
tonight. Also, I think the one thing, as much as the talk about uh, Jared McCann, is we're, we've lost a 40-goal score, leading, leading score, 70 points. Seattle's penalty kill was woeful all season until January. And it was the addition of McCann and some, some tactical changes they made with him on, on that unit that really turned things around. And up until game four, the Avalanche is not to, had they not, they hadn't scored a playoff or sorry, a power play goal in the series until game four. They hadn't scored a power play goal all year against Seattle and against Philip Grubauer until game four. So, um, if the absence of McCann affects the penalty kill that much, that could change this series as well. Because with him, and up until this point, the Avs could not could not get anything done on the power play. And hey, Philip Grubauer is a part of that too. Uh, he knows this team so well. He's comfortable, obviously, in Ball Arena in Colorado from his time playing there. But there are times on some of the one-time options to Rantanen and McKinnon where it's not just that Grubauer is reading that well and beating the pass across. It feels at times like he's there before the pass is even made because he knows what's coming, and, and he's been really good in this series as well. Before we go to uh, what's happening in the Eastern Conference, let's stay in the West, and uh, let's talk about what's going on with the Edmonton Oilers. And, you know, we saw Corpus Salo play really well initially, and now he obviously got pulled last night. We've seen Skinner get pulled but come back into the lineup. And goaltending's been a big topic of conversation in that series. How do you see it, especially on Edmonton's end? Um. I see this as being more about uh, who's having success as a team and what they're giving up than it is about the goaltending. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day right now, neither guy's above expected. Uh, and it seems to me that as good as Corpusella was during the regular season, there are elements of his game that Edmonton is attacking very specifically and having success doing. Um, you know, I've talked on my, on, on my weekly appearances with Edmonton Radio going into the series about uh, the tendency to retreat off the rush in, in parallel to the goal line rather than rotating into angle as that, that puck carrier comes down the wall, comes down the wing, uh, drifting in a straight line, staying parallel to the goal line, not staying square to the shooter and sort of giving up far side. Um, and also the tendency of pucks to squeak through you when you do that. And we've seen Edmonton score, uh, even on the power play when they're set up, sort of target that little bit of a drip, that little bit of a retreat with far side shots, especially coming off the blocker side wing of Corpus Allo. So, um, you know, that's a tendency that would have been somewhat evident in, in a, in a pre-scout. I mean, if I could see it, then clearly the Oilers goalie people could see it. Um, and then the other part that I didn't have that they're really going to town on it. Hey, these are good scoring plays regardless, but uh, anything below the goal line behind the net and trying to create laterals off that Corpus has made some spectacular saves in those situations, but if you notice, they're all with reaches. Like, he's extending and reaching to make those saves, and in addition to sort of relying on your your hands and not sort of getting across with a good push and filling that space a little more efficiently with more of your body. Um, so, so, in other words, it's harder to make those saves, and, and he's missed a few as much as he's caught a few. Uh, it also, even when you get it, if you get a pad on it, you're already extended. Like, there's no you're all in on that save. There's not a lot of sort of coverage left for the ensuing scrambles. And I mean, that's, that's a good way to create offense against any team and any goalie. But when you look at the way Corpus Allo plays that, and you look at how often they seem to be trying to generate those chances, whether it's from behind the net or walking out of the corner, um, rather than going low high, they're always looking to make that pass. And maybe some of this is identifying uh, some exposure in the defensive zone coverage, but they, they've gone after that big time. And, and as a result, a goalie who you know, was really good in the regular season, especially after we got to L.A., is now all of a sudden below expected. And then on the flip side, Stuart Skinner's like the only guy who's given up more goals worse than expected in these playoffs so far is Vasilevsky. Skinner's already five goals below expected. And I think that you know this is sort of part of a, a theme that started with the Avalanche, right? Like um, overrated, underrated. You know, you need – you know, heroic goaltending in the playoffs to win a cup of the six series right now in the first round where a team is up. In other words, the six that aren't tied two two for the goalies that are ahead are below expected. The only two guys that are sort of carrying their team to victory at this point are, are, are um, Jake Ottinger um, and, and, uh, oh, and I'm going to brain cramp on the other one. Sorry. Uh, and, um, Linus Allmark, and he's not even a ton above expected because of the one game. So it is a small sample, 
but we seem to be getting more into the territory of it's what you create and what you give up relative to your goalie strengths as opposed to, you know, not as many teams just being like, we just need a goalie to steal us one here. Well, it's kind of what it feels like. I, I think about Brassois and Skinner, um, you know, both give, below expected. Yeah. yeah. Given the way Colorado has looked so far and, and wondering if they're going to be able to, to really mount a, a, a repeat from what they did last year, I'd probably say Vegas and, and Edmonton are the favorites after that. And like, I just, can I see Laurent Brassois or, or Stuart Skinner carry a team to a cup final? It's just, it, it, it doesn't give me a ton of confidence. I'll say that. Well, but, but then again, like, like look at what happened last year, you know, um, you know, last year in the playoffs, um, it was, you know, again, I got to be careful here because Darcy Kemper was a really good goalie for Colorado all mm-hmm. season. Like he was well above expected, had a really good, especially second half of last season for the Avs. But in the playoffs, and I think a lot of this was the eye injury, but the reality was in the playoffs, the Avs goalies ranked in the 20s in terms of their performance relative to expected. Like, that sort of changed some of that narrative. Like you don't necessarily, so can you see those goalies? No, but would you have bet that the Avs were going to win a Stanley Cup last year if I told you their goalies would rank 21st and 23rd out of 26 goalies to appear in the postseason? Probably not, and that's why I think sort of, you know, I'm I'm waiting for that sort of, there's a knock at the door, they're coming to get my goalie (laughs) union card here, but um you know, here's the, that's the reality, right? We've had this conversation in years past, you know, goalie coaches, you know, what would you, what would, what do you want? Top three cent, like three great centers, four great D or an elite number one goaltender. And the damn near every goalie coach I know is going to tell you, give me an elite top four D out of those three and I'll bid you, build you a goalie that can win behind it. And so, um, and the one thing I will say, whether it's Brassois or whether it's Skinner, like um, especially Stewart, as much as his overall numbers haven't been, where he was even on the season, especially the last six weeks of the season when he was really good, he hasn't given up a low percentage goal. And so that's kind of, you know, that's sometimes that's all you need. It's not so much that we, we don't need all the spectacular. He's getting beat on a lot of high danger stuff more than he did during the season, but he's not giving up the stinker that, that deflates everyone. Even in the game he gets pulled from, none of those are low percentage. There's some mids, but some no lows. So, um, you know, I think that's part of this discussion as well. Even the guys that are below expected, that's kind of, they're just, you know, a lot of them are just slightly below, right? So that's what you're asking for. You're, a lot of these teams are just asking for them not, we don't need you to be a hero. We don't need you to win the series. We're just asking you not to, to give it away. And, you know, you mentioned uh, Andre Vasilevsky, and uh, in terms of goals, uh, uh, expected goals against, he hasn't exactly been great. And there's been a big topic of conversation based on what Derek Lalonde had to say on Hockey Night the other night, saying that when he was there, uh, the point shots is what he struggles with the most, one of the worst in the league. John Cooper kind of fired back today and said the reason why Derek Lalonde is there is so he can provide insight since he was with the Tampa Bay Lightning. It's just that he may not be correct in his assessment. What do you make of his overall play and that whole notion of him struggling? struggling when it comes to point shots well i mean it's not okay so like it's not like andre vasilevsky isn't stopping straight clear-sighted point shots mm-hmm. we're talking about traffic and screens and deflections yes and so there's an element i can go back to my the first time i ever did a playoff breakdown for nhl.com um you know sort of those first few years where vasilevsky was a part of the conversation sort of digging through stuff and there are aspects of the way he uses his high stance on plays out in the perimeter that are part of that pre-scout way back then. Um, a lot of goalies use high stance now trying to look over traffic to find pucks, but the way he holds his head up high, looks through the bottom sort of part of his vision and then moves into those shots. Um, you know, there are times where you can catch him late getting to the ice and actually beat him along the ice. If you can get it through those screens, five hole, there were various elements that have been obvious all along. Now, when I look at the numbers, yeah, like, and, and to be honest, this data set's so big that it's got to be split up um, between 2018 and 2021, and then 2021 to 2023, because ClearSight tracks so much different data per shot that it doesn't fit on one server. But when I look at both of them combined, nobody's given up more goals in the National Hockey League on screens than Andre Vasilevsky. But his performance relative to expected on those shots is still net positive. Now, how much net positive? Like, he ranks around 19th in the league. So I guess my point here is 
Like Vasilevsky's the best goalie in the world. He's still above expected on these shots. But relative to the other things he does well, this is a weakness. Anything that Andre Vasilevsky is ranked 19th or 20th in is a weakness compared to the other things. And so you're going to target that. And there are some physical and biomechanical elements there that, you know, I don't think those have been secrets over the years in terms of how to maybe attack Andre Vasilevsky. Like, you know, we talk about how you create offense in this league, you know, lateral plays across the slot line, um, you know, like, like that make a goalie go east, west, back and forth. Well, very few do it as fast and almost none do it at his size that fast while maintaining sort of balance and not selling out for one save, like being able to grab an edge and go back the other way than Andre Vasilevsky. So why would you attack to his strength? So one of the reasons probably that despite decent numbers, like relative to expected on these long screens, on these screenshots, which are inherently from the point or further up in the zone, um, is because teams are trying it more. They're targeting this, and they have for a long time, so I don't think it's a secret. I can't speak to a study about how well he sees those pucks, and that was what I thought Lalonde intimated, and maybe that's where Cooper's pushing back. But certainly analytics that track screens, and don't forget, that's a pretty small list, including a lot of proprietary companies that don't include screen data. Um, Yeah, this is a trend that has been there in part Again, because it's not because he's bad at it. It's just he's not as good at it as everything else, and he's really damn good at other things. And the other part that I think gets lost in this, and again, because we don't track this stuff, or very few do, these are not low percentage chances. You know, a defensive screen, like an own your like your own player screen in you, has a sixteen percent chance of going in. A layered screen is up to eighteen percent. A screened one timer is a forty percent chance. A screen deflection, and that's what we're talking about here, is a 30%. Like, historically, that goes in 30% of the time. And a shot from the slot area where the screen is 39%. So these are not low percentage chances that Andre Vasilevsky is whiffing on. Um, And I think that because of the nature of a shot from distance, that's what people think. Um, this This is part of a trend, yes, but it's not like... Like, the best goalie in the world didn't all of a sudden become really bad at something. It's just relative to how well he does everything else. It makes sense to attack him this way. More teams do, and that's why he's given up more goals than anyone else over the last five seasons on screen chances. And so all of that all of that makes sense. I just think maybe because of the nature of the origin of it, because it's a former coach, it's just given away to a little more hyperbole. Like, I could just focus on the fact I could have answered that question probably a lot shorter by just saying, yeah, Andre Vasilevsky's given up the most screen goals, therefore the most goals from distance of any goal in the NHL over the last five years. But like a lot of things in goaltending, it's a lot more nuanced than that. Um, before we let you go, uh, Abbotsford uh, taking on Calgary in uh, the Calder Cup playoffs. Game one goes tonight. We've seen uh, Spencer Martin uh, really start to uh, find his game. Him and Silovs have been rotating through starts. I mean, there's, there's only been two. So uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes in this series. But um has he sort of found his game in Abbotsford? Yeah, no, he really has. I mean, I had a chance to talk to him sort of late in the season, uh, even before that, that surprise playoff start. Um, you know, he's not playing as much uh, as as maybe anyone, you know, like if you're a goalie, you want to play more, right? But obviously, Seelovs is a part of the equation there. But during his time down there, he's really calmed things down. Um, the aggression we all saw here, uh, you know, trying to battle – you know, and inherently, like, you know, they just needed to, like, things were going the wrong way. And it's one of those, you know, I compare this to golf all the time. Like, the harder you try, like, that's not an answer in golf and it's not an answer in goaltending. Like, and you're struggling, just try harder, just swing harder, usually doesn't work. And so, you know, when you're being asked to battle and find a way and just, you know, come up with a save, sometimes that's going to, what's your instinct there? To be more aggressive. And I think a goalie that had already been sort of somewhat targeted and identified as, hey, he's going to come out and challenge uh, perhaps over aggressively on an open look, so just pass it around him and, and behind a team that was so permissive at lateral passes, you know that's what teams were doing to Spencer Martin up here. And he looked at times before he was sent down, like like he just wasn't sure of, of what he should do out there, and, and there wasn't a lot of confidence in his own game. Uh, he's rebuilt that down there. He he's not a passive goaltender by any means. He'll still be out above the crease, um, but able to recover that position because he's not. When an open look comes up, he's not then challenging out. He's sort of holding ground rather than sort of almost like he used to. He almost used to like go at shooters. 
um, here in Vancouver, and they figured that out pretty quick. And so he's he's found a, a much healthier balance into his positioning and his depth management and how he's playing the game. And, you know, that bodes well. He looks a lot calmer in there. He's not stranded nearly as much. And, you know, it's something that I mentioned a couple of times late in the season. I would have liked to have seen that game behind Tockett's Canucks to see if it translates. Um, I guess we're going to have to do a little bit of guesswork whether we think it will in terms of the options and whether he is one for next season. I think it will translate better. Um, you know, I've said this before. I don't think Spencer Martin was as bad as he looked by the end of his stint up here, just as, you know, we didn't think he was going to have the highest adjusted save percentage in the league like he did at the end of the season prior, right? There's a middle ground there. I happen to be one who believes that middle ground is at an NHL level, and we'll see whether he gets to keep playing here in the Calder Cup playoffs um, and a chance next year to prove that. Now, I've had, and just so you know, like, hey, like, like I'm biased. You start to like these guys. Yeah. You, you you build relationships with them, and you can't help but have a bit, like, your human nature is to root for a guy like Spencer Martin. So maybe some of that goes into my answer. And I'll always be honest about that. As much as I try and be objective, it's not entirely possible. I like the kid. I like the work he puts in. But I talked to a couple other AHL goalie coaches who watched him and felt the same way over the last month. Um, they were impressed by his game, impressed by where it was at. And if the Canucks don't want to keep him, they kind of also believe that he might be an option for other teams looking for cheap, reliable help at the NHL level. Enough to risk what they have or think it's better than they have, maybe not. But I think a lot of people around the league, well, again, the few that I, the couple that I talked to who watched him in the AHL believe at the very least he's very well suited and very capable of being a three who can go in, in and play NHL games. So the, the sort of thought that everything that happened to him in the NHL this year makes him no longer an option at the NHL level. I don't believe that. And there are other people that are far better at judging than I that agree. Uh, he is the man who brings us uh, some insight to the method that is the madness of goaltending. It is Kevin Woodley. Thank you for this. My pleasure, guys. Uh, there he is. Uh, Kevin Woodley in Goal Magazine and NHL.com. Great stuff as always from him. And on the Vasilevsky stuff, I mean, that's why the context does matter. We all know Vasilevsky is one of the best goalies in the league. Yes. It's really hard to beat Vasilevsky. It's very hard to break down the Tampa Bay Lightning. Yeah. So how do you score goals against them? You get a lot of traffic. <laughs> right? So, I mean, it's, it's one of those things. You, yes. you kind of look at it as well. So how much of that is him actually struggling with it? Or that's how they get attacked a lot because your best chance to score against them is getting a lot of traffic on them. Uh, it is Canuck Central coming up. Overrated or underrated next on Sportsnet 650.